turbulent times call for clear-headed insight. That's hard to come by these days, especially on TV. That's where we come in. Salem News Channel has the greatest collection of conservative minds all in one place. People you know and trust, like Dennis Prager, Eric Metaxas, Charlie Kirk, and more. Unfiltered, unapologetic truth. Find what you're searching for at snc.tv and on Local Now Channel 525. Hello, hello. Welcome back to the show. It's Morgan Zeggers here again. And today we're talking about communism. Specifically, we're going to talk about the tactics of the radical left throughout history and in America today. The things you need to know. What an important episode, Morgan. Thank you so much. (laughs) Okay, let's go. But before we get into talking about communism, we've got to talk about important things like towels because it's also important to shower and bathe and be clean. Have you ever picked up a towel that doesn't dry you and it just makes you frustrated? Me too. Nothing worse than buying them at the store and then it's a major disappointment and there's no returning them, okay? The MyPillow towels actually dry you though and you can get a six-piece set for $39.98, two bath towels, two hand towels, two washcloths. $39.98 with promo code MORGAN. Go to MyPillow.com and get this discount. It's 10-year warranty, 60-day money-back guarantee. Again, MyPillow.com, promo code MORGAN. My parents just told me they were buying more towels and... To my great disappointment, they were going to the store. And I said, wow, it's almost like I don't have a code. But I digress. Let's get into it. Okay, so today we're going to kick it old school. We're going to go back to 2019 Morgan vibes and 2020. But basically when I used to go around to college students and high schools and talk to classrooms of kids about the rise of the radical left throughout history, the tactics they used, of course, the definitions and the usual stuff. But most importantly, the tactics that these same groups of people use every single time they come to power in a country. Because what do you know? It looks very similar. And as a short recap, if you haven't listened to the last episode, then the recap is that I had a communist roommate in college and she had a poster of mass murderers and dictators on her wall. She said she was a communist, going to bring progress to America. It was going to work this time, yada, yada. And to my massive disappointment, and embarrassment, I had no idea what to say back to that, okay? And I'm a history nerd. I love learning about these things. I love values rooted in freedom, and I'm very proud of them, but I definitely wasn't good at communicating about them. So I went on a little research journey, and it just really sparked my interest more and more. Eventually, I started the nonprofit, and now we're just rocking and rolling years into that, providing resources and trying to not just make social content, but really move into educational resources for moms and parents and people that are trying to communicate these things to young minds. So specifically for me, I definitely want to homeschool one day and I can only imagine right now because I don't have kids, but I can only imagine how overwhelming it is to be taking care of children, also trying to educate them all while keeping the house, doing all the homemaking, all the meals, everything. So basically moms have a lot going on. And what I said to Moms for America when I spoke at Mar-a-Lago just a month ago in December was that our team at our nonprofit is rooted in service. And we want to serve you. We want to serve the moms of America. We want to serve the mothers out there and the fathers and anybody else that wants to take on this important educator role instead of relying on the public school system. We want to serve them. And 
when you root your day and what you're doing in your your job or even just in your daily life into service, you feel a lot better. And so our team with this core message of serving others by providing them this information, and not only that, but making it usable, attainable, understandable for the parent or whoever's reading it, and then making it easy for them to communicate that stuff and those lessons to young minds. That is really, I think, where the rubber meets the road, where we can set ourselves apart. Because there's a lot of information out there, of course, but we're trying to make it as easy as possible for people to just understand on a conversational level. So that if they or their children ever find themselves in the place of Morgan Zegers, where she is face-to-face with her communist roommate with a poster of Mao Zedong, Lenin, Stalin, Karl Marx, Fidel Castro, and there are these mass murders and dictators have fruity umbrella drinks in their hand and party hats on, and it says, welcome to the party on the poster. If they ever find themselves face-to-face with a communist, these people will be able to clearly communicate in a simple and understandable way about our values and why those values that they hold are going to destroy the country in a polite way, of course. All right. So that's what we do. Now, when I was going around from school to school and doing all these things, I basically had the same speech that I would give and kind of adjust for the location and just for the audience. And I would add things or take them out or whatever I thought fit the crowd. And what I always liked to include was the discussion of the classic steps, the tactics of leftists as they come to power, as they start to implement their policies, as they seize control, and as they work, because the end goal of all of this is communism, as they work to get to that utopian communist state that they dream of, and what the heck starts to happen as they actually try to implement these policies. So I think it's important for us to understand here, listen, I'm the first one to admit this, I named my organization Young Americans Against Socialism, and I've been very upfront about this. I hate the darn name, okay? It was just a sassy thing at first. Like, <laughs> like you're making a Facebook page, and for all the older people on Facebook, like, Young Americans Against Socialism? Dang, that sounds like a good group that we want to support. There's every young person likes AOC, you know? It was just kind of like a coy thing, and you know, there's been some regrets, but it's okay. We're, we're dealing with it and we have that name. That being said, one of the reasons beyond just the silly acronym and the long name that it is legally, it's really frustrating to have to type it all out all the time. And of course you can't find a long enough Instagram tag for it, whatever, right? There's problems with it. My frustration with it is that I personally see that there are so many other threats to the country than just socialism. And when we started it, we just kind of had, you know, a small vision, right? It was just supposed to be like funny, coy content where everybody was loving AOC. She had just been elected. You saw this rise of support for people like Bernie Sanders and what they were saying. And we just wanted to be the counter voice to that. (laughs) And, And people say, oh, well, you're being negative by saying you're against socialism. And I counter that by saying, you know what, this is a very unique situation where we're not being negative in that way of, oh, we just don't have anything that we stand for. But instead, this situation of socialism that appears so positive, that's sold to young people as such an exciting concept, we need to have negativity start to surround it. We need to wake people up to the realities of it. And so, yeah, our content is aggressive sometimes. It's harsh. It's really just harsh reality because we're interviewing people that escaped those countries. We interview people that escaped slave camps in communist China. We interview people that were eating cats off of the street as everybody in Cuba around them was starving. 
We've interviewed people from Cuba. Some man, his mother was helping the opposition to the communists. He, she was aiding the people trying to fight the communists and trying to get away from their power grab. She was helping them. And guess what? When she needed life-saving support, she was denied the life-saving support that she needed because guess what? The government controlled all the healthcare providing. And so they could easily look at their political opponents and say, eh, you're not going to get the health care that you need to survive this. And guess what? She died. And so that person that we interviewed, Ray, he quickly left the country right after because he said, geez, I've lost everything. So we interview people with very aggressive stories. So when people say, Morgan, again, socialism is so negative. Don't you stand for something? It's like, of course we do. And that conversation can also take place. But there is a space needed on the Internet for proof for documentation, for actual detailed history of what has happened when you implement socialism. I want it to be negative. No offense. All right. So that's one of the things. But getting back to why I have an issue with the name, socialism is not the only problem. However, socialism is the key step to getting to communism because it's the economic step. So when we look at all this, of course, there's a ton of problems to talk about in our country. But I do believe socialism takes up a certain important single space, its own conversation. Why? Because if a population, if enough people in a population don't understand this one specific political issue, this one specific economic system, it will bring a country down. There is a very short list of political topics, issues, things in history where if people don't fully understand it or are misguided on it or have these certain misconceptions about it, an entire country can be brought down. Countries have been brought down. Okay. This is kind of important because this could destroy the nation if enough people don't have a proper grasp on this very important topic. You get me? So that's why I think this is very important to understand and why socialism itself deserves its own attention with its own nonprofit. That being said, back to my little issue with the name, there are multiple aspects of what happens when the left comes to power and how they achieve that end goal of communism. You have many figures throughout history that say something along the lines of the same quote, that socialism is the required step to get to communism. Why do they say that? It's because it's the economic step. Okay. When people talk about socialism, a lot of the times you'll see, you know, the flashy memes and the funny stuff online from conservatives about how socialism is bad because there's inflation. Socialism is bad because the economy tanks, because then you have food shortage, because then there's not a lot of options, because then yada, yada. And it's all about economics. It's all about options. It's all about products, whatever it may be. But we take it a step further and we talk about why socialism is truly deadly and dangerous and leads to communism. Why so many people People in history have said that it's the required step to get to communism. Why is that? It's because socialism goes beyond just uh, economic failure and it actually gives the government full control of the people. If the government has economic and financial control of the people, if they are the only provider, producer, creator, maker, and giver of certain or all goods or services, I mean, come on. How dangerous do you think that could get? For example, think of what happened when you had 100 million people in the country last year get told that they would lose their job because of a government mandate that if you don't get the vaccine, you will get fired. You will get let go from your position. Now, a job is a job, right? But take it a step further. What is a job? It gives you the money that you need to put food on the table and provide for your family. You need the job. 
right? The other aspect to that is, guess what? It's not like, oh, then I'll find another job. Then I'll just go get self-employed. I'll just change career fields. No, no, no. The government understood what it was doing here. Because are you really going to quit that job and then just go get another job at a, a competing company? Oh, wait, you can't. Unless you completely try and gain all these new skills, neglect the degree that you have, you can't just go to the next company nearby and ask for a job from them because the government is mandating it from all companies. There's no other options. So it's either you don't put food on the table, you give up years of this degree that you've sought, all of the money that went into it, all of the expertise that you have in that career field, you give all that up and you struggle to put food on the table or you comply with the government. Now take that concept of, You will do X, Y, Z in exchange for this thing that the government is providing. And in this case, the government was just doing it with a mandate. But now take it to a system of socialism where government not only becomes the only provider of goods like a car, because that does become an issue, right? But now take it to the government tells you what hour and what day you are allowed to arrive and shop one hour at the grocery store for your food for the week. The government provides you your health care. The government provides you your job because they're the only employer. The government provides you the pension. The government provides you with the shelter over your head because they own everything. That's the thing under socialism. The government slowly nationalizes industries. It takes over industries and becomes the provider, the creator of that good or service. And then it says, it looks at the people after it takes economic financial control. And it says, okay, so now we're the only provider of this thing that you need to get by. What you need to do to continue to get these things from us is comply with whatever we say. You've seen this, and I think it was either the Washington Post or the New York Times, I can't remember, but they have admitted in their reporting that in countries like Cuba, where they say they have free elections, what they're actually doing is with very strategic and clear messaging to the people, they're saying, listen, you know that we control you in every way. We can see what you're doing. We can watch you with your ID card, with your ID number, whatever it may be. And we know when you show up on election day, if you don't show up on election day, you're going to have some things taken away from you. And what the New York Times or Washington Post, and again, I can't remember what they reported was that, listen, the Cuban government, the communist regime, they don't have to take it the step further of, listen, we're going to know who you voted for. Okay. All they have to say is we're going to know if you showed up on election day. And so that's the message that the government puts out. Why? Because the government, if they're able to track that you as an individual showed up on election day, guess what? They're able to track who you voted for. And they're going to see if you voted for or against the regime. And if you voted against the regime, it's not going to be good. Okay. They have places where they can send you. They'll put you in jail. They'll get rid of you and they'll end your life. Or they'll just say, okay, that's fine. We just won't give you your health care. You'll just get fired from your job. You'll get no money from the government and you will be destitute and you will slowly starve to death with your family. Okay, but just keep in mind that we're going to be able to see if you showed up on election day next week. Thank you so much. Thank you for supporting the regime. So guess what? What happens next? The people in political office, they win the election and then they can tell the entire world, no, 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 we have free and fair elections. We were democratically elected into office. And then you have American politicians on the left that go, look at Cuba, free health care for all. They've got everything provided for from the government and they have free elections. Clearly, the regime is popular. Okay, maybe they're not so bad. Maybe as Black Lives Matter, we should commend the Castro regime, which they have done. Maybe as Bernie Sanders, we should say it's not so bad in Cuba. You know, what? who are we to talk here in America when we can look at Cuba and they have everything provided for them by the government and they get reelected? Do you see how this is a problem? 
of not just economic issues where the country has its economy tank, but now the government has complete control of the people and what they do every single day of their life and what they do politically because they can take away the financial and economic things that these people need to live every single day. Okay. It's all about control. So talking about how socialism is that required step to communism, it's because you need to have that level of control over the people and you do when you control the money. So that's that. But here's my thing. There's two other parts that I call other pillars of communism. And there's there's actually quite a few, I'm sure. But I like to talk about three core ones. You have socialism, but then you also have, I like to throw in authoritarianism and totalitarianism. Authoritarianism is basically what we saw with the mandate, where it was like, listen, you're either going to get the vaccine or you're going to get fired from your job. You tell me what you want to do. That means you're acting by force. The whole point of America is that we're supposed to be about choice. And people get upset when you talk about the word choice because the abortion movement in our country has completely taken over that word, right? So if I, as a freedom-loving American that wants choice in every aspect of my life, say that, oh yeah, well, I'm actually anti-abortion because I'm for that infant, that child in the womb being able to live. They deserve a life. They are alive. They deserve to keep that life. And it's not your choice of killing or not killing that baby in the womb, that's a little different. You're ending a life. And that's what that whole Supreme Court decision was just about this year. That, okay, this is not about someone's choice because this happens to end or not end the heartbeat of another human being. That's why it's not just another simple choice that can be decided privately behind closed doors. You see how that was like, okay, a little different. I don't care if people have a problem with me talking with the word choice, because I think it's important for us to bring back that, yeah, for human history, most of it was about force. You force people to do things. You bring violence if they don't comply. And that's the way of the world. That was human nature. That was human history. And now, because our founders worked so diligently to evaluate human history and build a society rooted in choice that would last via separation of power, decentralization of power, checks and balances, accountability, all of that kind of stuff, it was to build a society where humans could have choice in what they do in life. So choice is very, very, very important. And it was, it is removed from you when you live in a society of socialism and authoritarianism. So authoritarianism is again, removing choice from an individual's life that I believe they have a right to and using force to implement your political will, whatever you want to achieve. Okay. Choice versus force, authoritarianism is force. And I'm worried about in America, the more we see these bureaucratic mandates, like the one, the vaccine mandate for the job, that was through some bureaucratic workforce agency. You see how they snuck that one through, but it kind of was like one of the worst things we've ever seen in this nation in terms of the restrictions, the removal of our freedom given to us by God when we're born onto this planet. I see these things and it makes me nervous that our country is becoming more and more rooted in force. Now, on top of that, Americans, especially the younger ones, are not used to an experience of force instead of choice. We are so blessed to live here. We are so lucky to live here. Yes, we have some problems. I'm not even going to talk about those right now because I'll get all flustered. But we are blessed to live in a nation where our lives are just whatever we want to make it. Whatever the heck we want to make from it. That is our life. We have full choice. And yeah, we have setbacks, we have frustrations, we have struggle, but we've got 
basic freedom, and that is something to rejoice in. Now, we're seeing a level in America of force that I'm, I'm quite concerned by, but there's still a chance to fix this, right? Okay, last pillar that I like to talk about is totalitarianism, which is basically like, hey, you don't like our socialist policies? You don't like our use of force versus choice? You don't like what we're doing here? If you speak out on it, you're done. What do you think I'm talking about with that? Probably, I don't know, something like the Twitter files that explained recently and exposed the government working with private media companies, private social media companies, to censor political opposition, to just remove us from the public square. Because they don't want dissent. They don't want people to disagree with them. They want to control the narrative. And that is done by just eliminating opposition. So obviously in America, we're in a, a different and you know more cushier situation of that kind of thought and conversation control, information control. But usually it's a pretty violent deal, right? That's why Che Guevara was called the butcher, because he got rid of political opponents that Castro would send to this island where he had the prison for all of the people that tried to stand up to the communist Castro regime. So totalitarianism is the elimination and removal of political wrong think. If you've read 1984, you know what wrong thinking is. You are committing wrong think to question the regime, etc. So those are the kind of the pillars. And as we go year by year in America, it seems like more and more is getting exposed, but more and more we are falling as a country. And it's very concerning, right? When we see these things taking place, it's actually not shocking at all. And that's been such an important message for me and for the team to share that, hey guys, guess what? There's like a guide map for how these people do this every time they rise to power in a country and every time they try and seize control. They have the same tactics. And there's these core tactics that I want to talk to you about today. The first one is controlling language. The second is Marxism. And of course, the last one is going to be creating a crisis, manufacturing a crisis, or taking advantage of a crisis, okay? So the first one, and I, I should actually say, before we get into language, these are the tactics that I would talk about in 2019. So think about how I talked about these in 2019, and then everything that's happened in our country since then, right? And what's happened has basically stuck right to these core tactics, and of course, many others. So with language, one of my favorite books is Road to Serfdom by Frederick Hayek. And he has a whole section about how socialists will change the meanings of words, basic words used in a society's language to control the narrative, to take control of how people converse and share information and see each other. Now, there's simple examples of that that we can look at throughout history. Like when communists come to power, they reject the fact that they are communists. We saw this with many countries, including one of the most recent, which was Venezuela or, or Cuba. When Fidel Castro came to uh, power, he rejected that he was even a socialist. He said, I am not a socialist. I am not a communist. I'm a democratic humanitarian, is what he called himself to the cameras. So you see this kind of rejection of these terms every single time. And that's why in America today, when you have people that are saying we want government to control major industries, Maxine Waters says she wants to nationalize the energy industries. AOC says she wants government controlled fill in the blanks, right? 
with the Green New Deal, you would have government takeovers of major aspects of our economy. When you read the organizations like Justice Democrats, the Sunrise Movement, all you have to do is read their website. And yeah, on the outside, it looks like a nice cushy program or movement for green energy or whatever it may be. But all you have to do is read the actual language on these leftist groups' websites, and they say, we believe in government takeover. We believe in government control. Seizing the means of production is what they mean. So yeah, they don't market themselves as straight up seize the means of production style socialists. They instead try and go around the route of, I'm a democratic socialist, right? That's a classic term. Or they say, we aren't going to end up like Venezuela. We're going to end up like Nordic Europe. But guess what? Nordic Europe is a market economy with just large government programs and high taxes. It's like, that doesn't really add up to what you're saying you want to implement in our country. So once again, they are calling themselves democratic socialists. They're rejecting the terms just like everybody else used to as well. What's another thing that they do? They use fluffy words like justice and progress, when in reality, whenever you implement economic socialism, you bring a country so far backward that people start losing weight. 24 pounds was the average amount of weight lost in Venezuela in, I believe, 2019. Can you imagine losing 20 plus pounds in a year? because of the failed economy leading to a food shortage in your nation because socialists said that it was going to be empowering for the working class to try this out? The other word they use, justice. When did they use that in America recently? When Black Lives Matter, a Marxist group that the founders have said, we are trained Marxists and they were proud to have their founder's book compared connected to Mao's Little Red Book in communist China during the Cultural Revolution, where tens of millions of people were killed, Black Lives Matter, when they were looting, destroying, and encouraging violence in our streets, maybe they would burn down a Black-owned business in a Black neighborhood. And they would say, the destruction of this property is nothing compared to the justice that they are trying to seek. It's worth it to receive justice in the long term. They were okay with destroying people's livelihoods in the name of justice and peace and all that jazz. So it's a little hard to trust them when they use these kind of words as they're burning down communities. You get me? What's another example of controlling language to control the narrative? Remember when herd immunity used to be a normal concept that, hey, if enough people got it, enough people built up immunity to it, enough people got the vaccine for it, whatever, all of it would combine to create a strength, a shield on society that would be termed herd immunity from whatever it was affecting us. But then for some reason, the experts started to change the definitions of things. So on those big health organization websites, they changed the definition of herd immunity, where it no longer included people just getting it and then getting over it and building an immunity to it. Herd immunity became only regarding how many in society were vaccinated for it. That's kind of a change of a definition, don't you think? And I'd say the most pressing control that we see in our language these days has to do with gender and all of this weird sexualization stuff. You can't even call 
somebody that is doing sexual acts in front of a child and trying to have discussions of sexuality with a child that can't wrap their head around it yet and where it should be legally and legally is considered child abuse. You can't even call him a groomer. The word is now nearly banned on social media. You can get banned from using the word groomer because they're saying you're just calling people in the LGBTQ community pedophiles and you're not allowed to do that. I feel like adults should be able to sit down with each other and say, hey, there's a big difference between somebody being in the LGBTQ community and doing their thing and living their life versus, big difference here, versus grown men doing sexual dances and having sexual private conversations with children to start to get them normalized into these hypersexualized scenarios where they could be taken advantage of. And then what ends up happening is a lot of these people, they get exposed for doing not so good things behind the scenes and they get called groomers. There's a big difference between those two things right there. You get me? So that's just one example of the control where you can't call people certain things anymore when they are guilty of doing that actual action, that behavior. But now you can't even know if you're committing wrong think or not by just maybe incorrectly using someone's pronouns. In some countries, they want, and even in America, they're trying to pass legislation where you could get punished committing a hate crime for misgendering someone because now they come up with over what it's over a hundred now different pronouns that could technically be used to identify human beings. This kind of stuff is highly concerning to me. One of the big examples that I've, I've talked about a lot is when Amy Coney Barrett was going to the Supreme court and she had her Senate hearings. She was asked a question that, you know, they couldn't find anything wrong on her. Like they, they tried to say all these terrible things about her, that she adopted a black child. And so oh, she's a colonizer and stuff. It's like really horrible stuff, but they, they just weren't really getting any big stories. And so eventually someone asked her about what does she think about people's sexual orientation? And her answer was very polite. It was something of, you know, that's them. I don't judge them. That's their choice. And when she answered in a very simple way like that, she said, I won't judge someone based on their sexual preference. That's it. Now, sexual preference was a term that Joe Biden has used. It's a term that the left's favorite lady, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, had used before as well in a positive way. They just used it because it was a normal term. Everybody knows that. But the left needed to freak people out and start something. And so they decided to say that it was highly offensive, very hateful. For Amy Coney Barrett to say sexual preference when it's not a preference, you're born that way. To say that it's a preference means that it's something you could just change on a whim. And they decided to make that into a story. And I remember that and just, I was so frustrated because there's proof of the favorite personalities of the left using that same term. And you know what, you guys, we're going over a little bit. And so I'm going to put this into a two-part episode. Stay tuned because next time I will talk about the second and the third tactics of the left, Marxism, cultural Marxism, and of course, manufacturing a crisis, how the left has done this repeatedly throughout history. Thank you for tuning in. I really appreciate it. I hope this is educational and I hope you have a nice weekend. Okay, bye-bye.